Just as a quick reminder, don't forget, I just prayed that we would silence our cell phones. So now's a good time to double-check that cell phone. Or get smited by the Lord. All right, so this morning we're starting a brand new series in Revelation. Uh, now we're going to spend the first nine weeks in a kind of a midi sub-series called Dear Church, which is going to cover the seven letters that were written to the seven different churches in Revelation. Now then as a preview, as a look ahead, when we get into December, we're going to spend three weeks in a series called Baggage, talking about all the baggage we carry in our lives from our mistakes, our hurts, and our pains, and how to let go and move past and find healing in that baggage that we carry. And then in January, we'll kick into Revelation chapter 5, and we'll go through the rest of Revelation. But like I said, this week, we start this series looking at the seven churches. The seven churches that were written to in Revelation, which are now located, in, which were located in what we now know as modern-day Turkey, spread all throughout Turkey. And they were about 35, 40 miles apart from one another. Now, these weren't the only churches that were around, but these were strategic churches and strategic cities. And so John wrote to these different churches and then knew the messages from there would be more easily spread out. Now, the book of Revelation, it was written about 60 years after the death of Christ, 50, 60 years, by the Apostle John. This is the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the same John who wrote the Gospel of John that we just got done spending some time in. Now, when John wrote Revelation, he was the last survivor, the sole survivor of the original 12 disciples. And now he's an elderly man. He's at the end of his life, and he's been banished to an island called Patmos, which is a Greek island uh, in the Aegean Sea, which you can still go visit today. And he's banished there for preaching the gospel. The emperor was done trying to silence him, so you put him on an island to shut him down, to shut him up. And in doing so, God revealed to John one of the most impactful books, one of the most confusing books, but one of the most impactful books of the Bible that bring, brought hope to endless Christians going through very hard times. And this is not the focus of our message today, but it gives me a couple encouragements. One, God can speak to us at any time, at any place, no matter what. And second, that God's word will never stop to be spread. No matter what you do, you cannot stop the spread of God's word. Amen, church? Now, this is a book that allows us to look beyond the physical realm of earth, and brings us into the supernatural of heaven and hell, angels and demons of God and Satan, and God's final plan for judgment and salvation. Talks about the end of the earth as we know it. Which for some people is not, it seems like a weird thing that are outside the church, but if you stop, all of humanity is, thinks about the end of the earth. I don't know about you, but I am a big believer in those natural disaster end of the world movies. I love those. Like, I could have asteroid movies come out every year. You know, I love all those movies. I don't know why. I'm just weird. Like, anybody else love those end of the world type movies? Is it just me? All right, good. All right. Well, Paulie, you're, you're the other person here who needs help. Okay, that's good. We can go to counseling together. But we're talking. We talk about the end of the world. Even science talks about the end of the world. 
I think one of the reasons that we think about the end of the world because in our souls we know things are not supposed to go on the way they are forever. Even if we don't realize where that comes from, it's embedded into us by the Lord. And so Revelation unfolds all of this. Now tomorrow, today what we're going to do is we're going to start in chapter 1. And we're going to start spending these first two weeks by looking at the one who writes these letters to these seven churches. And I'm going to read just through the first eight verses, and then I'm going to pause anything I want to explain. And then after we read through these first eight verses, we're going to unpack a few truths I think the Lord wants to bring out to us today for his glory and for our edification. So here we go. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now the reason he says blessed is the one who reads these aloud is because in those times not everybody could read. And they didn't have printing presses or emails or texting like they did today. So people would read these letters in front of large groups of people. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Pause again, because I've got asked before, who are the seven spirits? And uh, I'm not totally sure who they are. There's different debate. Could these be signifying different angels? Or could this be a reference to the completeness of the Holy Spirit, even though it's mentioned in a plural form? Not totally sure. Let's keep reading. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. When I was growing up, like some of you who grew up in church, I'd watch these movies about the end times. I'd read the books about the end times. And I always thought that the point of Revelation was to reveal the end times. But as I've studied Scripture in my life, I've come to realize that that is not the point of Revelation. The point of Revelation is to fully reveal Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that again. The point of Revelation is to fully reveal Jesus Christ. And church, that is the revelation we really need. We don't need to know what's going to happen. We don't need to throw out the charts on the walls, and the diagrams, and decipher all the mysteries of the Bible. That's, that's not what we fully need. It's nice. It has its place, but that's not what we need. 
What we need in our lives is to have Jesus Christ revealed in all of his glory. That is what we really need. I feel like we are in a society that takes a very lighthearted view of Jesus. I could give you endless examples, but none need further than the fact that you can walk into a store and buy a Jesus bobblehead for your dashboard. You see Jesus in all of these pop culture movies and stuff, and, and he's taken in such a light-hearted way. But even if you've grown up in church, you've probably had a, a more reverent view of Jesus, but sometimes we have a very incomplete view of Jesus. Think to yourself, when you, when you picture Jesus, what do you picture? I mean, sometimes we picture Jesus as the baby coming in the manger, he was a teacher of good truths that revealed the kingdom of God. He's a suffering servant who died upon the cross. Or a savior who raised from the dead. These are all good and important views, but they are incomplete. They're not the full picture. I feel like when you see images of Christ, which I don't know where they came from because we have no image of Christ, but that's another topic for another day, there's very little focus on Jesus as the coming king, as the coming and conquering king. And that's my desire this morning for this entire series. If nothing else, I don't care what charts or things we figure out, lampstands and bowls and candles and beasts and seas of glass, the thing I care about the moment the most is that we will walk away seeing Jesus as the coming king. That you will see him as the coming king in your life. We're going to cover this passage next week. It's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to listen to this description that John gives of Jesus. He was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John says that when I saw him, I fell. I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Can you imagine that, seeing something so great and so powerful that your reaction is to fall as if you were dead to the ground? He says, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the key of death in Hades. Do you have this view of Jesus in your life? Do you have this view of his majesty and his power and his strength? You can't understand the true fear of the Lord until you see Jesus as the coming king. I mean, here, listen to some of the names of Christ that are used. King of kings, Lord of lords, the almighty, the judge, the rock, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the bright and morning star, the image of the invisible God, the great I am, the first and the last, the alpha and omega. Is this the God that you worship? 
I remember uh, when the first, uh, for you comic book people, when the first Marvel Avengers movie came out and the chief antagonist, Loki, he's trying to take over New York City by bringing aliens in and all that stuff. There's this one point where him and he's in this room with the Incredible Hulk, you know, the big green guy. And, uh, and, he, and, he, and he gets frustrated and he said, why don't you guys just stop messing with me, bow down to me, let me be king. And so the Hulk, in his way, grabs Loki by the legs and starts slamming him back and forth over and over. And some of you remember this scene like a rag doll. Boosh, 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 boosh. And then it just shows a scene of Loki just laying there, just shell-shocked, bruised and beaten. And Hulk, as he walks away, he goes, puny God. Revelation from chapter 1 to the end screams out to us that we do not worship a puny God. In fact, that we worship the only God. In fact, preacher Vadi Bachman, great preacher, by the way, highly recommend him. He got famous for this part of a sermon where he said part of the problem in our American culture is that we have developed this weak and needy view of Jesus. He says that we have this sissified view of Jesus that we have built up in far too many churches. We talk about how much he needs us and how much he's, he's waiting for us and how we're, we're breaking his heart. Vadi says, no, no, no. When Jesus comes again, it's not about his broken heart. If you're not following him, he's going to break you. He is the conquering king. He is self-sufficient in need of nothing. That's why it's amazing grace, because he doesn't need to give us salvation. He does not need to give us his spirit. He does not need to do anything for us. If Jesus is who he says he is, the moment we sinned, he had the right to end us, and he would have been just fine. Far too many of us, we have this weak view of our Savior. We see him, like that one song says, we see him and talk about him as the lamb, but we don't spend enough time seeing him as the lion. Do you hear me, church? Let me read this in verse 7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And tribes of earth will wail, mourn on account of him. As you sit there this morning and listen to my words, I do not know what God you worship, but this is the God I worship. This is the God of the Bible. You know, in the beginning of this letter, and it's, it's a, a, a greeting that's used often in the Bible, John says, grace and peace to you. I love that. See, this is where the peace comes from. It comes from understanding who Jesus Christ is that he is the coming and conquering king. Peace comes from knowing who he is and thus also knowing what his promise is and his ability to fulfill it. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Can you imagine what that day will be like? When the Lord just returns. day of great fear and mourning and joy 
And this is the wonderful, beautiful dichotomy of Jesus that you spend your whole time, your whole life as a Christian learning to unfold and know better. This, this man who is a suffering servant, but also a conquering king. Philippians 2.9 talks about his suffering, and it says because of this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This gives me peace today. That no matter what's going on in this world, that God will have the final say. It gives me peace among all the suffering. It gives me peace among all the pain. It gives me peace among all the evil. That in the end, God will set right what is currently wrong. Do you have that peace this morning? It sure feels like these days are days of great instability. Now, if you, if you study history, you'll know that there really are no days of stability ever, ever. But for us, it feels unstable. You have the pandemic that we're coming out of, the political turmoil that makes you just want to move to the island of Patmos and be by yourself, inflation, which really is horrible, by the way. Man, playing 20 bucks for a bottle of peanut butter, it feels like. Sorry, I went shopping this weekend, I'm bitter. You have what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and, you know, and, and I don't know President Putin, but from what I see on the outside, this dude does not look stable. And if nothing else, the fact that the, the Seattle Mariners just made the playoffs in the first time in 21 years, I'm telling you, if that ain't the sign of the second coming, I do not know what is. Bitterness in my heart there, too. But it feels unstable. The problem is when you don't see Christ as the coming king, that's instability. It gets in here and it gets in here. It builds anxiety and frustration and panic. And you're reacting to the present instead of the future. And, 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 and this is what changes things. When you see Christ as the coming king, of all the places where you put your faith, and we're all people of faith, it just depends on where we put it, you put your faith in the coming king, it changes how you see the present. Instead of looking at the present through the present, you look at the present through the lens of the future. And that's another desire that I have for you, that you start looking at everything going around you in your life through the lens of the future, of what is going to happen. That when you look at Ukraine and Russia or, or the politics and all of that, you don't just look at it that way. You look at it through the lens of that the Lord is going to return because it changes everything. Far too many of us make the mistake of looking through the, at the present through the lens of the present. It's the biggest mistake that we can make as Christians. This is an encouragement we need. This is an encouragement they needed. The people that it was originally written to in the, in the New Testament I don't know if you've studied New Testament history at all, but imagine yourself as a Christian during that time. You faced danger on every side. You had Jewish persecution. You had Roman persecution. 
There were members of your churches back then who were imprisoned in dungeons because of their faith. Others had been hung on crosses. Others had been, failed, uh, have been fed to wild beasts. Some beheaded. And you're facing this daily pressure from your culture to bow down and worship the Roman emperor. And if you don't, you might lose your job. You might lose your family. You might lose your life. And so Revelation was written to fuel the mission among these believers, to give the Christians the boldness that no matter what was coming at them at the present, that because of the lens of the future that they were looking through, they would continue to boldly proclaim the gospel. Back in, uh, I don't know why this came to me, but it did. Some of you will appreciate this. Back in 1963, there was a group called the Angels. Anybody want to date yourself and you guys remember who the Angels are? And they wrote this famous song called My Boyfriend's Back. You guys remember that? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know how old you are by nodding your heads or not. And it was a song about this girl whose boyfriend who went away, and this other guy had been giving her trouble, and she said, look, my boyfriend's back. You're going to be in trouble. Some of you are going, hey, love, hey, love. Right, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying, right? He says, you're a big man now, but he'll cut you down to size. And this, in a, in a weird way, is the encouragement that I see in Revelation, that things are tough now, but my God is coming back. And he's going to cut everything down to size. This is the encouragement that John is giving to these believers. Your God's coming back. He's coming back. Stay bold. Now listen, we as Americans do not fail face this kind of persecution. I feel like the American church is soft. I do. Because I'll see little things that happen and people will just go off the rails about the persecution. We don't know what persecution's like. We have no idea. However, I'm also not blind to the changing climate of our culture. I watch study after study also of how Christianity's influence in America is declining, how the church is getting smaller. Now, I don't think the church is really getting smaller. I just think that what's happening is there's a, now a divide between those who are really committed to Christ and those who are just playing church. Because it used to be a good thing to go to church. You were looked highly upon in your community if you went to church. There was social benefit for going to church. Business dealings in your neighbors, in your family. Well, those benefits are starting to slip away. And so now those who were there for the benefits to look good, they're starting to check out. I think that's what's happening. But in any case, I think over the next couple generations, you're going to see Christianity continue to decline in this country. Nowhere in the Bible do say things are going to get better. Never, It doesn't say that anywhere. And I think where Christians in our country are going to start to need a book like Revelation like never before. We're going to need it to give us that courage to know that our God is coming back. That he will set the wrong things right. That it will give us the courage to stand for our creator and our savior no matter what the cost.
That's why it's important we understand a book like this. And I love the encouragement that he gives back in Revelation 1. He says, the things that must soon take place. All throughout Scripture, you see the idea of God returning soon. I like that idea. How about you? Soon. But what does soon mean? Because this, with this word soon, I am convinced that literally every generation since this was written thought Jesus was coming back in their time frame. Everyone. Every generation. And I bet every generation will think this until Christ actually returns. And yet, we see Peter, another one of the disciples, who writes this in 2 Peter 3.8. Do not forget this one thing, my friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In other words, time's a little bit relative with God. He's outside of time. And so even though we're 2,000 years into this story after Christ died and rose again, we might only be a couple days into God's timeline. And to the best of my knowledge, we haven't finished the full work of the Lord. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Listen, and then the end will come. To my knowledge, the gospel has not yet reached every corner of the world. So with this and other reasons, I think we can see how this idea of soon was not meant to give us like some timetable for our charts, a date to put on the calendar. It was meant to be an encouragement. And you see this in Scripture. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. And yet, we also read in Mark 13, 32, when Jesus says this, talking about the end of times, talking about his return, he says, Concerning that day or that hour, nobody knows except the Father. So soon is relative. It's meant to encourage us that God is at work. He is putting things in line. That's why we see in Revelation 1 where he says he is the ruler of kings. He is weaving himself throughout humanity to bring his story to a close. And to begin the new chapter that we see at the end of Revelation. Doesn't mean he approves of all kings. But sometimes, as we know and have experienced, he will allow things for his purposes. Knowing that pain and suffering on this earth, compared to eternity, is just a snap. But what we do know is that when it happens, it will happen fast. 2 Peter 3.10 the day of the Lord will come like a, does anybody know? A thief. A thief. A thief. But I think one of the mistakes we make as Christians, in my opinion, is we want that thief to come far too fast. We go back to 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance or to reach repentance, as this version says. I don't, I don't want my heart to be focused on God. I want you to come back tomorrow. 
Come back, Lord, smite my enemies. Especially since I have a huge mortgage. Come back now, right? Our heart should be, Lord, I pray that you, I, I, I just pray for more time. I pray for more time, Lord. Give me time to spread the gospel to as many people that need it. Our heart should be burdened for those who do not know the Lord, who put their faith in themselves or they put their faith in horoscopes or any endless other things that people put their faith in, their jobs, their money, what have you. Our heart should be burdened. We should be thankful for God's patience. Now, there's one second thing I want to highlight that I think this understanding of this coming conquering king should have an, uh, how it should impact us. In one, it gives us confidence and encouragement, but I think it should also hold us accountable. Let me ask you a question. Are you living as if Jesus is coming back? Are you living as if Jesus is coming back, or are you living as Jesus died for your sins and he's just waiting for you to come to heaven? saved you. Live a good life. I await you with open arms. Or do you live as if he is coming back? You see, these first century Christians, and you read it all throughout the New Testament, not only were they under the threat of persecution, but there was the lure of pleasure in the Roman Empire. Pleasure just roamed everywhere. Sex and success and money and power and materialism Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And some of these supposed Christians, you read about this through New Testament, they were falling away into this stuff. They were giving themselves over to these worldly pleasures. And, but God, through revelation, he calls them to holiness. Now, I want you to hear this, especially if you're a church person. If you're a church person, I want you to hear this. Ten different times in Revelation, we see the people of God urged to keep the commands of God. And it's interesting, if you pay attention, the book, the Revelation does not end with a vision of heaven. You think that's what it ends with, that's what we remember it ending with, but it's not what it ends with. Yes, we see a picture of a new heaven and a new earth, but right after that, right to close out the book, John gives repeated exhortations to holiness in the church. In fact, I counted eight of the last 15 verses in Revelation are God calling his people to obedience and faithfulness. Are you faithful this morning? Revelation is filled with promises of blessing for the faithful, and it is filled of, with warnings, warnings of judgment for those who fall away. This book gives us some of the most terrifying Pictures, terrifying visions and illustrations and symbols of God's wrath and judgment. And the most scary part about that for me is it was written for the church. It was written for believers. Because there were men and women in the church who claimed to be Christians but were denying Christ outside the church building and running after the world. I guarantee you, 
I ain't calling certain people out. I'm not even thinking certain people. In this church today and in every church across this country, there are people who are claiming to follow Christ, but outside these doors, they are falling away. Revelation is calling you to account. It's giving us a serious and somber warning to those of us who are tempted to fake it. Whether as parishioners or even as pastors. God is calling us to repent and turn from our sin. So church, I pray that this book is a wake-up call to all of us. That we can be bold and we can be encouraged that our king is coming again and he's going to set the wrong things right so we do not have to live in fear. But we do have to live in faithfulness. We have to live like there is a king coming back. We stop have to living pathetic, and it is pathetic when we are apathetic in our Christian walk. And I speak that as someone who's lived in apathy myself. Where we accept God's grace, and then we're like, thank you, God, for my gift, and we go live in our lives as if we are king of our own lives, as if God is not coming back to judge the world. Time is too short. Time is too precious, and the gift that we have to give is too great for us to waste our lives on the pleasures of this world.